Hi, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Cece Wong, and you're listening to my interview podcast, where I chat with guests from all walks of life to hear their stories and to share insights we can all learn from. Hi, guys. I'm talking to a philosopher today to get insights on one of my favorite topics, life. We're going to hit all the big questions, like what makes life meaningful, how to make good decisions on the big stuff, and how to find personal fulfillment. With me is Dr. Thomas Herka, an award-winning Canadian moral philosopher and the Chancellor Henry N. R. Jackman Distinguished Professor of Philosophical Studies at the University of Toronto. Now, Dr. Herka studied philosophy at the University of Toronto and Oxford University in the 70s. He is a prolific author, with many papers, articles, and books on morality, ethics, and virtue, or as he likes to say, on what's good and what's bad. His book, The Best Things in Life, A Guide to What Really Matter, is what caught my attention. In it, Dr. Herka ponders what makes a good life, and concludes that a well-rounded life with a balance of pleasure, knowledge, achievement, and virtue is what we should strive for. I'm very happy to have him with me today to share with us his insights on the good life, and we'll also hear about his career and how philosophy can help all of us live better and wiser lives. Welcome, Dr. Herka. Pleasure to be here. So we're in the beginning of May and classes just wrapped up at universities. How was teaching for you this past semester? Well, I actually wasn't teaching this past semester. I'm getting close to retirement and um, I taught in the fall. So I taught a second year introduction to ethics that I've taught for many years, started out online and then switched to in person, which was vastly more rewarding. And then I had a fourth year seminar on the topics that you mentioned about the good life, about pleasure and knowledge and achievement and virtue and the other things that make our lives desirable and worth living. So that was that was good. So I read on RateMyProfessors.com that you're actually a very well-loved professor. All your students said that you're kind and you're funny and your lectures are very interesting. You must really enjoy teaching. I do. Partly when you're lecturing to a large class, so that second-year introduction to ethics might have 250 or 300 students in it. It's a little bit of performance, and you're trying to keep people's attention and interest, which is harder these days when they've got laptops in front of them and Facebook and email or whatever they can look at. But you can feel when they're paying attention and when you're catching their interest and you've got them absorbed, and that's a rewarding feeling. And then um, in the upper level courses, like the fourth year course that I taught in the fall or in graduate seminars, and you have the reward of helping people think through issues and you get new ideas from them and there's a kind of back and forth and that can be very rewarding. So I'll miss that when I'm retired, but um, there comes a time to move on and let other people have that pleasure. Mm -hmm. How do you make your philosophy lectures interesting for students? Partly by not sticking too long on any one topic. So keeping things moving. Students always benefit from examples because philosophy is quite abstract. Yeah. And you're discussing an abstract question. And if you can illustrate it with a concrete example, that's always helpful to students. And I have to say, in the the lower level course, several times during the, the course, I think there's a popular song that reflects whatever philosophical idea we're talking about. So I sing them that song. Wow. Can you sing it now? Well, well, sure. So just the first one I do, 
you know, Plato's form of the good is supposed to be something the knowledge of which motivates you to action. Just to be aware of the good is to want to live your life guided by the good. And some philosophers think that that's impossible, that knowledge and belief are one thing and desire and motivation are another thing and they're completely separate. So the Scottish philosopher David Hume thought that and many contemporary philosophers thought that. But Plato and people who are influenced by Plato today think, no, they're, they're, they're certain special objects like the form of the good or value in general are both things that you can know about and be aware about and things that once you're aware of them motivate you to act. And so I sing, da-da-da-da-da, to know, know, know him is to love, love, love him. Do you know that song? That's um, I, late I don't 50s. know it, but it, it certainly makes it much more memorable. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's, the, that's the sort of thing. Of course... You know, the music I know isn't the music that today's students know anymore, but they still th get a kick out of somebody singing them an occasional song. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to get to know a bit about your personal journey um, to studying philosophy and becoming uh, a professor of philosophy. At what age did you start reading philosophy and become fascinated by the subject? Well, I think at some point during high school. So I went to a, a high school that was quite focused on the humanities. And this is in the 1960s. It had someone who taught philosophy. And so I took philosophy in high school. I don't think we were taught very well, but I was interested in it. And I, you know, read books about existentialism and, you know, um, novels by Camus and things by Sartre. And so I was interested in philosophy. And I went to University of Toronto as an undergraduate. And I was interested in English literature and in philosophy and in history. And I took two courses in each of those my first year. So I took just philosophy, English, and history. But and by the end of the year, it was clear to me that philosophy was what I found most interesting and what I'm by far the most suited for. So that's when I made this decision. So in high school, it was one interest out of, you know, two or three. By the end of first year, it was I was what I was going to mostly do. Mm. So what was studying philosophy like at U of T in the 70s? Well, it was quite varied. The part of the university I was in, there were people who were very interested in the German philosopher Hegel. And so I got interested in Hegel and I would do, you know, independent study courses on Hegel in which I wouldn't really do any work and somebody would give me a high mark anyways. And then there were other people, but I thought that I should, you know, be studying philosophy more generally. And there were people who taught more contemporary analytic philosophy of language, philosophy of science, philosophy of logic. And I took those courses. And I will say in my last term, at the time, the University of Toronto Philosophy Department had these undergraduate courses. And if you signed up to teach it, there would be a maximum of six people who could sign up for this course. But if there were six, you had to divide them into two groups of three. So there, there were going to be these classes that met once a week with only three people in them. So I was in one of those and one of the people quit. So there were only two of us. So that's a very unusual undergraduate experience to have. And that was in ethics, which I hadn't really done before. It was a course on utilitarianism. And I thought that was really great. And that, that became my interest. So I went when I went to graduate school at Oxford, it was with the intention of mostly studying ethics. I didn't just do that. You have to do other things as a graduate student. But that was going to be my main interest. And that's all because of that seminar in the last term at the University of Toronto. We can't afford to put on courses with only two people. 
but that was possible in 1971. Mm -hmm. So if someone were to major in philosophy, what kind of thinking skills would they have to be good at or be able to learn in order to succeed in this field? You know, we're largely analytical and argumentative and logical. So some of the skills are of logical argument. A, that supports B, which supports C, which supports D, sort of arguments like that. Analysis, understanding ideas, exactly what they depend on and what they don't, what counts in their favor, what doesn't. And we place a lot of weight on clear, um, logical writing. So I think, you know, people who study philosophy, even if they're not going to go on to be philosophers, get trained in clear, logical, structured argument. No frills, no metaphors, but clarity and conciseness and logical structure. So as you're reading, I know why this paragraph follows on the one before, and I see why it leads into the one that comes next. Yeah, it sounds like the uh, the building ground for like a career in law. <laughs> well, a lot of students who want to go into law take philosophy courses, and it's thought to be good preparation for the LSAT if people want to write the LSAT. But yeah, legal reasoning, it's got its own distinctive features, but legal reasoning and philosophical reasoning aren't completely different, yeah. Is that sort of thinking something that comes naturally to you? That's a good question. It's certainly something you learn, and it's something that takes time to develop. So it's not something that you just do from day one. But I think probably some people are more naturally inclined to it than others. When I was thinking about philosophy in high school, or when I was you know, doing things on Hegel in my early philosophical years, I don't think I had much clarity and logical sharpness. So, you know, I could have taken that route, but I didn't. You know, I think it's like anything else. Think of a musician. Somebody who's going to be a great musician probably is born with some musical talent, but they have to spend a lot of time developing it. Philosophical thinking, you also develop by practicing. Mm -hmm. So after University of Toronto, then you applied to graduate school to further your knowledge of philosophy and got into Oxford. Why Oxford? Oh, I wanted to move on to someplace different. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I applied for a Rhodes Scholarship, didn't get it. I wasn't really a candidate for a Rhodes Scholarship. And then I was, well, I'll show them, I'll go anyways. <laughs> I didn't want to stay at the University of Toronto because that would be the same place. The University of Toronto is the biggest and the best philosophy department in the country. So no other place in Canada would have been as good. And I didn't want to go to the United States for political reasons. So I ended up going to Britain. But Oxford is no easy university to get into. <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess for whatever reason, I mean, I had decent marks and um, what I sent them by way of, you know, an example of my philosophical writing was pretty terrible, I suspect. But anyways, I was I was admitted and I went and maybe I was luckier to get in at the time than I realized at the time. Hmm. I think you were probably very good at it. You're just probably a little bit modest. Well, I, I said philosophy is something you have to learn. And you, there could be lots of wrong turns. And I think I was probably in the middle of some wrong turns when I filled out whatever applications I wrote in the middle of my fourth year. And, you know, you have to send along a sample of your writing. And I probably picked bad samples. So how did you enjoy studying at Oxford? So I just enjoyed being in a different country mm. and, you know, in a beautiful city with beautiful architecture, sort of new experiences, all of that. We were, to a considerable extent, left on our own. I mean, I, had, was I was originally taking a degree called the B-Phil, 
And the idea is that you had to write three three-hour exams at the end of two years. Wow. And you were given two years to get ready for these exams. And you were largely on your own. And you also had to write a little thesis. But you were largely on your own. And some people mishandled their time. They, they didn't work on the right things. And they ended up you know, dropping out of it and not taking the exams. But I got some very good advice from a fellow Canadian right at the start, which I followed. And, you know, I did okay. Mm. So at Oxford, did you further your specialization in ethics? Yeah, mostly. You know, for these three exams, they had, this had to be to a degree in different areas. So one of them was moral philosophy, but the two others were different. One of them was, one of them was Aristotle, for example. You had to do something from the history of philosophy. And everybody was doing what was called philosophical logic. So I did that too. That was kind of the hot topic. But yeah, the seminars I went to were mostly moral and political philosophy seminars. So a lot of my thinking was shaped by what was going on in that university between 1975 and 1978. Yeah, I read that your PhD dissertation at Oxford is on the moral theory perfectionism. Yes. And then later you wrote a book on it, and it became your most notable work in philosophy. Uh, can you explain to us, um, you know, general audience, what perfectionism means in philosophy? Yeah, so it has, the word perfectionism has a meaning in philosophy dating back to the 19th century, which is different from the meaning it has in everyday English. I mean, normally you say he's a perfectionist. He has to dot every I and cross every T. He's fussy about details. That's not the idea. Perfectionism is a, a way of thinking about morality that's centered on a picture of the good life. So you ought to aim at a good life for yourself. And I think in the best versions of the theory, you ought to aim at a good life for other people too. You're not concerned just with your own living a good life, but in helping other people to do that and supporting the social institutions that let everyone lead a good life. But what's distinctive is the understanding of what a good life consists in. And so it's, it's not equated just with pleasure. That's hedonism. So hedonism thinks the best life is the most pleasant life or the life with the greatest surplus of pleasure over pain. And if it said, if you were told to aim just at that kind of good life for yourself, the idea would be you should aim just at getting the most pleasure in your life and don't care about anything else. But another version of you called, you know, utilitarianism, people are familiar with that, says, no, no, you ought to try, you ought to care every, equally about everybody's pleasure and do just as much to give pleasure to other people as you do to give pleasure to yourself. But there, the idea is the good life is the most pleasant life. Now, perfectionist views just have a different view about what the good life is. They might, in some versions, think that pleasure is part of a good life, but it's not the whole of a good life. And so they would think that, for example, knowledge and understanding, those are good things. And a life that was perhaps less pleasant, but involved more knowledge and understanding, of yourself and of the world and of your place in the world, maybe of science, of history, of all those things. That could be a better life, even though it was less pleasant. Another good might be achievement. So where, I mean, pleasure you can have purely passively, just sitting and eating chocolate bars or, you know, having your back rubbed or something like that. But achievement involves setting yourself a goal and then working hard to achieve that goal, where, you know, the degree of value of an achievement can be a matter, for example, of its difficulty. Uh, you set yourself a difficult goal. It might be climbing Mount Everest. It might be finding a cure for cancer. Um, it might be, you know, founding a business that becomes successful. 
All those things are difficult. And if you sort of carry them through and successfully achieve through all the different steps that are required, that difficult goal, that's an achievement. And that can give you, um, that can add value to your life, even if it doesn't give you the most pleasure. Because very often, you know, along the road to your achievement, there's all sorts of frustration and pain and blood, sweat and tears. But if it really is an achievement, the idea is here, that value, that's valuable. Another part of the good life might be appreciating beauty, artistic beauty. And that's, of course, pleasurable. But the idea is if you get pleasure, you know, reading literary fiction or looking at the best paintings or listening to the best music, that's more valuable getting them than getting the same amount of pleasure from eating chocolate bars or having your back rubbed. And lastly, I mean, there, 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 there are many possibilities here, but another possibility is being a virtuous or morally good person. So the idea would be that caring about other people's happiness rather than just your own, that's another good thing. If you're a person who's compassionate um, and caring and kind and generous and brave and modest and whatever the other virtues are, that makes your life better. Again, even if it doesn't give you the most pleasure. The world contains many bad things. And if you're a virtuous person, you'll be upset and pained by the bad things the world contains. An example I often use is imagine you're one of the soldiers, I guess mostly Russian soldiers, who liberates a concentration camp at the end of the Second World War. And you come into the camp and you see what's been going on there. Well, if you're a virtuous person, you're going to be appalled. I mean, you're going to feel terrible. But here the idea is that a person who coming into a concentration camp feels terrible is at that point leading a better life or doing better than someone who comes in, doesn't care, just goes to the, you know, the commandant's wine cellar and starts drinking his wine. That person gets more pleasure. Being appalled at what you saw is not pleasant. But the idea is that that's um, another aspect of a good life. So in this broad sense, perfectionism is a view that says we ought to aim at good lives, either for ourselves or more plausibly, I think, for all the people we can affect. But the good life isn't just the most pleasant life. It involves one or more of knowledge, achievement, virtue, aesthetic appreciation. Oh, another aspect of it is sort of being self-directing, autonomy, or making choices for yourself rather than having them made for you by somebody else. Somebody could make choices for you that give you a very pleasant life. But on this perfectionist view, you're not leading your own life. And that means that it's less valuable. And just one, one last thing, that sort of perfectionism in a broad sense, perfectionism in a narrow sense, which is what that book of mine started up by discussing, though I got less and less interested in it as time went on, is a kind of idea that goes back actually to Plato and Aristotle that says a good human life is one which develops sort of the characteristic properties of human beings to a high degree. You know, Aristotle thought that human beings were distinctively rational, where they're rational animals. And so the good human life would have to develop human rationality to a high degree. So he thought certain kinds of understanding, especially philosophical understanding, were part of parts of a good life. And certain kinds of, as he thought, rational action, namely virtuous action or political action, that was also part of a good life. So the two understandings of perfectionism Aim at a good life where that contains things other than pleasure. And then in the narrower sense, perfectionism is a view that identifies the goods other than pleasure by saying they're the things that develop our fundamental properties as human beings.
So for you to focus on this idea and to bring your own points of view to it, what makes you so sure that this is true? This is what leads to a good life. Oh, well, I'm probably not sure. And if, if you recognize how difficult philosophy is and how many different views there are among the many philosophers in the world, you're never going to believe in anything with certainty. All you can do is think about things in the best way you can and come up with what you think is most credible. Do I think that the most pleasant life is the best life? Well, if I think about it, my answer is no. My answer is no, even I, though I know there are philosophers in the past and today who said yes. I could just, it's also a view that's expressed in literature. Many of my students in Ontario in high school read the novel Brave New World, the Aldous Huxley novel. That is a critique of hedonism. That's a kind of perfectionist novel. Because if you think of the lower orders in Brave New World, the deltas and the epsilons, they have a lot of pleasure. What they say is everybody's happy here, and it's true. They have pneumatic sex, that's what they call it. They go to the feelies, which are movies which give them passive entertainment. And they do kind of mindless labor, but they don't want to do anything else. They say they're happy to be the kind of people they are. So, you know, they have lots of enjoyment. They're contented. But... Do they have much knowledge of themselves or the world or their place in the world? No, they're deluded. Do they achieve anything? No, they're just doing simple mindless tasks and having simple mindless entertainments. Do they appreciate, you know, complicated aesthetic objects? No. Are they virtuous? Probably not. Are they autonomous? Are they self-directing? Are they leading their own lives? Again, no. So... You know, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World was written as a critique of the view that the best life is the most pleasant. And a more recent example, you know, a lot of people know the movie The Matrix. So in The Matrix, you're not exactly ecstatically happy. I mean, when Keanu Reeves is in his little apartment, it doesn't look great. I mean, it's a pretty boring version of the lives we lead today. But compared to life in reality outside The Matrix... You know, you eat the same terrible food every day and I forget what else there is. The The Matrix has got more pleasure, not a lot of pleasure, but more than in reality. Remember, there's one character, Cypher, someone who goes back into the Matrix because he just thinks it's too awful in reality. But Neo, the Keanu Reeves character, says, no, if I've got a choice between pleasant illusion and knowing the painful truth, I'm going to know the painful truth. So that's preferring knowledge, which is a perfectionist good, awareness to ignorance is bliss. So those are kind of literary expressions, and there are many others of a kind of perfectionist view of what a good life is. But I would also argue that the definition of the good life also varies by person, right? Every person has their own idea of how they want to live their life and what a good life means. So how do we come up with this universal concept of the good life? People have different ideas about what's morally right and wrong. Some people have thought, you know, right now, Vladimir Putin thinks that invasion, invading Ukraine and killing civilians is right. And I think we can say he's wrong about that. That's what he believes is right, but it's not true. And so if somebody said, I think the best life is the one that contains the most mindless passive pleasure, I would say that's what you believe, but I'm sorry, I think that's wrong. So, you know, we... There are disagreements, and that's why we don't hold our views with excess certainty. But 
you know, we can we can form our own opinions and any opinion we have, someone else is going to disagree with. And then we have to say that person is wrong, just as they'll say we're wrong. But we have to live by our own convictions. Um, but I will say something. When I've tried to talk about the good life, I've tried to suggest that there are many different things that can make for a good life. You can devote your life to knowledge as a scientist or a philosopher or a historian. You can devote your life to achievement as an athlete or a mountain climber or a politician. You can devote your life to artistic beauty as a musician or a painter. Um, you can devote your life to what I've called moral virtue. You can you know, work in charities and work to benefit other people. And those are all different ways of leading a good life. Those are all perfectly good ways of leading a good life. There isn't one thing. There isn't one way to lead a good life. You could do mostly this or mostly this or mostly this or mostly this. And within each category, there are many different things you could do. Take achievement. You can lead a life of high achievement by being a professional hockey player or by being uh, a political leader or by running a business. You know, there are little achievements like keeping a beautiful garden. So the idea is it's not as if anything goes, but the, but the elements that make for a good life are in a way abstract and they can be specified and filled in in different ways. So two people can lead equally good lives, which are very different. Let's say this person as a hardworking scientist, this one as a devoted parent and mother. Given all those ideas you talked about, um, perfectionism and what is a good life, can you give us a more concrete answer when it comes to decision making, such as whether to end a marriage or make a career change, when it comes to adopting what you just said about being virtuous and being focused on knowledge and all those other things when it comes to assessing your choices in life? Well, it's, it's, very, it's very hard to give a general answer. So, you, you know, if the question is, should you end a marriage or not? It's going to depend a lot on what the marriage is like and what you're like and what your partner is like. So, you know, it, it's hard to give a general answer. You know, many people think that whether they should end a marriage depends a lot on whether there are children and how old the children are. And so, you know, a lot of people think, no, we have to stay together for the sake of the children. Because they think that, you know, being brought up in a house with two parents will lead in, in whatever ways to a better life for the children. Now, people dispute that, you know, are maybe children brought up in single parent households do perfectly fine. But that's something to care about. And you care about if the parents split up, will that cause unhappiness in the future for the children? Will it mean that they lack self-confidence and so aren't as successful in the achievements they try to pursue as they might otherwise be? Will it make them more self-focused and less empathetic towards other people? Those are all things you can think about. So that's effects on the children. And then you have to ask, you know, if you think about marriage and personal relationships, they're a part of our lives where many of these perfectionist values are present to a high degree. So if you love somebody and are in love with them, well, you get a lot of pleasure from spending time with them. They get a lot of pleasure from spending time with you. One philosopher has recently emphasized, you know, a close friend or a partner is somebody who's kind of a protected zone in their company. You can sort of leave your other worries behind 
And now you're not worried about impressing somebody. You're not worried about, you know, what's going on at work or your relations with other people. You can just relax. And that's very important for both of you. But, you know, a partner is somebody that you probably understand better than you understand anyone else. That's knowledge. You have achievements together. You know, you do things together. That's valuable. And most importantly, someone you love is someone towards whom you're most virtuous. I mean, when you care about somebody that you want them to be happy and you're upset when they're in pain and you want to help them in whatever projects they're pursuing. In loving relations, we're often at our morally best. We're most empathetic, most benevolent, least selfish. Okay, so personal relationships have all those things going for them. Now you have to ask yourself, you know, if we continued this marriage, would that continue? If the answer is no, we're going to be miserable in each other's company. We're going to be deluded about each other. We're not going to do anything together because we don't want to do anything together. And we're not going to be benevolent and empathetic. We're going to be nasty to each other. Then whatever the values there are, you know, the perfectionist values there are in a successful, loving relationship, they won't be present. And, you know, despite the various costs, maybe economic costs, maybe some costs in your happiness, if, you know, you're not going to have the income you had before, you can't go on the same nice holidays, you can't wear the same nice clothes. So maybe you're going to have to give that up. But you're going to get out of a relationship where there might be more bad things than good things, particularly if you start getting nasty towards each other. And what if there's children involved? Well, now that, that, that's what I said is on the other side. If what the marriage is going to be like, if it continues, is sort of nasty and acrimonious, that might not be better for the children than if they were with the parents separately. So it's very hard to, to generalize and know what's what's the case in any particular instance. But, you know, the perfectionist idea would be what would be the effect of staying in the marriage or ending it on the capacity of our children later in their lives to lead the kind of life, whatever it is, the kind of good life, whatever it is that they're most suited for or would most want to pursue. And, you know, what's the prospect that we, if we stay in this marriage, we'll have a relationship with positive perfectionist goods rather than the opposite if we're nasty to mm -hmm. each other and acrimonious and so on. Yeah. Just um, on a related question, um, I know you have a son, right? Yes. Adopting the perfectionist um, way of thinking, what's your advice on how best to raise a child? Oh, God. Well, he's it's, it's interesting. He's always had completely unmaterialistic interest. So he's not interested in money. He's not interested in the stuff money can buy. So if that's a temptation that might lead people away from a good life in a perfectionist sense, we've never had to do anything to protect him against that temptation. With him, we haven't had to do very much. When he was in high school, he's not very social. He's not a party guy. But he came to really like tutoring and helping other students, particularly in science. And so he's now studying to be a high school chemistry teacher because that's a matter of helping other people understand a subject he loves. So he's got interest in knowledge, you know, interest in science, and interest in helping other people develop knowledge of science too. So now I guess in, in his case, we try to encourage him to do some more things that would be enjoyable. 
and try to be more social. It's about that balance, right? That's right. Well, and, you know, you, you can't push people. Um, if you try and force somebody into some activity that you think is worthwhile, you might just have the opposite effect of pushing them away from it. One thing, and again, this is a kind of middle-class thing to do. Many parents try to expose their children to many different activities. You know, play sports, learn to play a musical instrument, maybe in school, try acting in the school play. Let's take you to the theater. Let's take you to art galleries. Let's read to you. Here's you know, an attempt to expose a child to different activities that embody some of these different perfectionist goods. And then, you know, I, you know, ideally your a child will have some more aptitude for and more interest in some of them than others, and that's where they go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk about one of your other books. You've said in one of your interviews that if there's one book you want people to read from you, it would be Virtue, Vice, and Value. Why are you most proud of that book, and what would readers take away from it? Well, it's more a book for philosophers, but it has, it has kind of a very simple idea. It's not original, but in the philosophical world in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, nobody was thinking about it. And so it's about the idea of virtue, the virtues that make people a morally good person. And there are many, you know, there are many of those generosity, kindness, compassion, courage, modesty, temperance, and there are many vices. There's malice, callousness, cruelty, laziness, pride, arrogance. So there's, you know, kind of a set of virtues, people that people think of as virtues, and a set of vices. And the question is, what do the virtues have in common that makes them virtues? And what do the vices have in common that makes them vices? And the idea was a quite simple idea that virtue consists in comparing, sort of caring in the right way about other things that are independently good or bad. So it's wanting what's good, or as I say, loving what's good, wanting it, trying to bring about being pleased by it, and hating the bad. So wanting to prevent, trying to prevent, and being pained by the bad. So just let's say your pleasure is a good thing. Then if I want you to enjoy pleasure as an end in itself, or I try to give you pleasure as an end in itself, or I see that you're enjoying pleasure, and I'm pleased by that fact, those things are all virtuous and good. Loving the good is another good thing. If your pleasure is good, then my loving for its own sake is another good thing and an instance of virtue. And that's benevolence, kindness, generosity. Now, let's say your pain is a bad thing. So my wanting you not to be in pain, my trying to prevent you from being in pain, just because I want you not to be in pain, by being pained by your in pain, that's hating something bad. And that's a virtue. And that would be, for example, compassion. Okay. Um, And now the, so the opposite attitudes are vicious and evil. So loving the evil. So if your pain is a bad thing, my wanting you to suffer pain just for its own sake, my trying to make you suffer pain just for its own sake, my being pleased when you're in pain, those are vicious and evil. That's malice, malevolence, cruelty, sadism. Um, Similarly, if something is good, then my hating it 
is another vice. So if your pleasure is a good thing, my wanting you not to have pleasure, my trying to destroy your pleasure, my being pained by your pleasure, those are vicious and evil. Uh, certain forms of envy take that form. You're happier than I am. I want to cut you down and make you less happy. That's evil. So loving the good and hating the evil, those are good and virtuous. Loving the evil and hating the good those are vicious and evil. So two things about that. I sometimes call this the car battery theory of virtue and vice. Because when you're boosting your car battery, you have to connect the positive terminal on one battery to the positive terminal on the other and the negative to the negative. If you cross them, positive to negative, negative to positive, you'd screw the batteries. So here, what's virtuous is having a positive attitude to a positive value, wanting something good or a negative attitude to a negative value, trying to prevent something bad like pain. And what's vicious is a negative attitude to a, something positive, a positive attitude to something negative, wanting you to suffer pain, or a negative attitude to something positive, wanting to end your pleasure. So when you, your attitude has got a kind of orientation, it's positive, it's pro something, or it's anti. So when the orientation, positive or negative, matches the value positive or negative of the object, that's virtuous and good. When the orientation, positive or negative, is opposite to the value, positive or negative of the object, that's vicious and bad. A literary example, do you know the children's book Madeline? In an old house in Paris, all covered in vines, lived 12 little girls in two straight lines. A couple of lines later, they smiled at the good and frowned at the bad, and sometimes they were very sad. This is a philosophically profound piece of writing. They smiled at the bad. They had a positive, sorry, they smiled at the good. They had a positive attitude to positive values. And they frowned at the bad. They had a negative attitude to negative values. So that is quite a simple idea, isn't it? That virtue consists in being positive towards the positive and negative towards the negative. And vice consists in being positive towards the negative and negative towards the positive. And so the book develops that. And there's lots more details. But that's the basic idea. I see. So you seem to be really good at explaining these abstract philosophical concepts to people like me, who doesn't have a philosophy degree. And I know that um, you also had a stint uh, as a Globe and Mail columnist. I did, a long time ago now. In the 90s. So how did that job come about, and what did you end up writing about each week? This was a time when the Globe and Mail was just going national. It had been a Toronto newspaper, and it was going national. And so... Its idea was that it wasn't going to be the only newspaper people in other parts of the country read. It would be something they read alongside the Vancouver Sun or the Calgary Herald or um, the Halifax Chronicle Herald or whatever. And so it was going to be more general. It was going to have more opinion pieces, more analytical pieces, rather than being as heavily oriented toward hard news. And the editor at the time was someone who had sort of an academic career. He'd done either political science or economics. And so he wanted, I don't know where he got the idea, but he thought that, that there should be a philosophy column. And he said, because they were going national, it could not be written by somebody in Toronto. And then he assigned the job of finding the person to write it to one of the, the editors who asked around the newsroom, well, I was from Toronto and I was teaching at the University of Calgary, so I wasn't in Toronto, but I knew people 
who are in Toronto writing for the Globe and Mail. And they say they said, well, why don't you try him? So they asked me to write some sample columns, which I did, and they liked them, and away we went. I should say, <laughs> I think, I don't know how relevant this is, but um, one of the people that was on the Globe and Mail had been in Oxford when I was, and we both played on the Oxford ice hockey team, which was, you know, terrible quality of hockey, at least if I was playing. And we, we would go and play somewhere late at night, and then we'd come home in a, in, on one occasion, we were coming back in a bus because we'd played Cambridge in some arena somewhere in England. And we'd had a certain amount to drink. And somebody wanted to talk about Plato's Republic. And I drunk and I said, ah, to hell with Plato's Republic. And my friend at the Globe and Mail said, you know, this is what Herka said on this bus. And they seem to think that's the kind of person we want rather than someone who's going to be too academic. So I just, um, to tell the truth, I wasn't like a journalist. Most journalists write things at the very last minute. So because they had asked me to write three columns in advance, and then they phoned me up one day and said, okay, let's start and let's let's use this one for the first one. I was now three ahead. And so I, would, I basically stayed three ahead. Um, there would be some topic in the news. You know, there were topics in applied ethics discussed by philosophers, and I would find some hook to write about it. I think I alternated, you know, every third column would be on a somewhat less serious topic. But I tried to keep it varied. Remember I said that when I teach, I don't linger too much. I don't think there was too much of a predictable political point of view. And I I thought the topics were kind of varied. What were some of the topics? Well, for example, one serious one, you know, issues about voice appropriation. That was starting in the late 80s. So I wrote a column about that, trying to be a little bit sympathetic to the people who complained about appropriation. This would be, you know, non-Indigenous people writing on Indigenous themes. There was one, I came to visit Toronto and I went for a walk late at night and the column began, you know, why is it that the bigger the house and the richer the neighborhood, the less likely that the sidewalk in front of it has been shoveled clear of snow? I have no idea whether that was true, but that was just a hook to start discussing something. You know, there would be there was one about sports, about why why American sports are dumb. You know, there would be occasional ones about the good life. I would talk about um whether the best life is the most pleasant life, or I would talk about virtue, about how it's a matter of caring about mm-hmm. other good things. And how did the readers react to it? Did you get lots of different letters? So it was I think it was pretty successful. You know, this was before the internet. There would be letters to the editor of the Globe and Mail. And then I would sometimes get letters. So these, these, these are, you know, letters through snail mail. And then maybe email was starting at the end. Maybe I got some email messages. I remember, you know, when it was Christmas, I'd write something about Christmas. So one of them was about, should you lie to your kids about Santa Claus? Is it wrong to tell your young kids that Santa Claus exists? And I basically said no. And I got this angry letter from some guy in Toronto. So look, I'm a... I'm teaching in the political science department at the University of Toronto. And my four-year-old was reading the Globe and Mail and he read your column and now Christmas is ruined for him. And I wanted to say, if your kid at four years old is reading columns in the Globe and Mail, he shouldn't be believing in Santa Claus anymore. Yeah, and actually another one that was quite popular, uh, you know, I never put the headlines on, the people at the newspaper did, but 
as you may know, when people try to get into graduate schools, there are all these ex exams they write, the LSAT for law school, what's it, the MCAT, medical school, and then the GMAT is for business school, and the GRE is for graduate studies in general. And there are various studies that have looked at how students with different um, undergraduate majors do on these tests. And basically, philosophy undergraduates do across the range of tests terrifically well. I mean, they're the best on the LSAT, best on the GRE verbal, and they're not bad at the quantitative ones. They're obviously not good, as good as the mathematicians on the math tests, but they're better at the math tests than the mathematicians are on the more literary ones. Mm. So there was a column about how you know, a philosophy degree is great training for all these things. And the headline was how to get to the top study philosophy. That's what they put on it. So that was that was thought to be pretty interesting. Oh, and then one that I, again, this is now ancient cultural history. Do you know the movie, The English Patient? Yes. So I, I read that and I thought it was, I watched it and I thought it was just awful. And I wrote a column about how it's the opposite of Casablanca. Because in Casablanca, the problems of two small people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. In other words, you have to give up the love of your life mm -hmm. if what's going on is a Second World War and Nazism. But the English patient is the exact opposite. Who cares about the war? There's this woman I love, and she's in this cave, and she's dead, but I've got to go find her dead body anyways. And if it means giving these maps to the German army that might enable them to win the war in North Africa, that doesn't matter. So I thought that was... The contrast was interesting and just ethically, um, the, I think the last, the last line of the opening paragraph was something like, there are two movies that both set in the Second World War in the African desert. Um, one is one of the most loved movies of all time and the other one is completely morally bankrupt and that was The English Patient. Because um, that is the point of The English Patient that who cares about war, mm, yep. but not that war, not, not when the enemy is that enemy. So, so sometimes, you know, literary works like um, Brave New World express especially effectively important philosophical ideas. Sometimes literary works are just ethically out to lunch. <laughs> yep. What are some of the biggest philosophical questions you're pondering today? Well, so... In the perfectionism book, one of the parts that I'm less embarrassed by is a discussion of the value of knowledge and the value of achievement. Now, you know, the, the book about virtue is trying to explain what the virtues have in common that makes them virtues and what do the vices have in common that makes them vices. And I, part of the that part of the perfectionism book was that knowledge and achievement have elements in common. They just kind of run in opposite directions. In knowledge, the world is a certain way and you make your mind match the world by forming a belief about the world that is true. In achievement, things go in the opposite direction. First of all, you have something, a picture in your mind, a goal of how you want the world to be, and now you change the world to match what's in your mind. So successful achievement and successful knowledge both involve a match between something in your mind and something in the world, but the way the match came about is different. In knowledge, the world is the way it is, and that doesn't change. You make your mind match the world. In achievement, no, it's your goal that stays the same, and you make the world change to match your goal. And then there's lots of other sort of parallels. So I might write another book exploring those parallels. I you know published an article about it recently, which some people find interesting. 
and it gets involved with things about there's sort of complicated questions about when exactly do you have knowledge so that's what i'm thinking about and either i'll do it or i'll decide it's too difficult or too much work and you know maybe at this point in my life i get to have less knowledge and less achievement and i can just do the brave new world thing and <laughs> just relax and relax and have pleasure. some pleasure yeah, yeah yeah so when is your uh retirement going to take place i think i fully retire a week a month a year from the end of june so i'm going to teach in the fall and then not teach in the winter because that's part of phased retirement and then i'll be fully retired just over a year from now which will be fine do you have any plans already made on what you're going to be spending your time doing Uh, not big ones. I would still want to keep doing philosophy, writing, and doing some reading, and so on. I'm not sure how much. Depends on you know. You write things when you have ideas, so either the ideas come or they don't.、Mm -hmm. I see. And what about for fun? Perhaps travel. I mean, you know, travel hasn't happened much because of COVID recently. I mean, I've decided not to teach in the winter, so we could travel in the winters. But COVID has kind of put that on the back burner. So maybe some of that.、Uh, I'm not as desperate to travel as I once was. So we'll see. And just one final question: What do you want your legacy to be in philosophy? So in my three main books, I wrote about something that other people weren't thinking about. That's partly because I was lazy. If you write about a topic that other people are writing about, you have to read a lot of stuff and a lot of contemporary stuff. And so the perfectionism book wasn't like that. It was mostly working out my own ideas. Certainly, the virtue book was largely like that. And then I wrote a sort of a history of philosophy book about people writing about moral philosophy in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century in Britain, and that involved a lot of reading because I had to read all their books and articles. But that was much more interesting than reading stuff from people writing today. So those were all, and those, and those were all topics that other people weren't interested in. So, if twenty years from now people are interested in those topics, and those topics have become more mainstream, so the general account of virtue and、um, the works of the people talked about in my history of philosophy book, that would be a great legacy.、Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dr. Herdka, for sharing your story with us and for enlightening us today. Well, thanks for the questions. It's been a lot of fun on my end. Dr. Thomas Herdka is a professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto. His website is thomasherka.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google, and head over to cc-wang.com. That's s-i-s-s-i-w-a-n-g.com for more interviews like this one. Plus, read about the guests you just heard and see pictures from the interviews. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. Until next time.